Welcome to the Startup Field Guide, an unusual ventures podcast where we learn from the successful startup leaders of today how their companies truly found product market fit. I'm your host, Sandhya, and in every episode, I'll dive into a different aspect of early stage company building with our guests. Let's go. Our guest today is the legendary VC who coined the term product market fit and has mentored and guided hundreds of founders and investors, Andy Ratcliffe. Say hello, Andy. Hello there. Thank you very much. Andy has had an incredibly accomplished career in the tech industry. He co-founded Benchmark Capital in 1995, which quickly became a leading fund with investments in iconic startups like eBay, Twitter, and Uber. He started Wealthfront in 2008, which has mainstreamed robo-investing and now manages over $20 billion for half a million customers. Since 2005, he has also been teaching entrepreneurship at Stanford GSB. In fact, both me and my co-host today, John, met Andy there and feel incredibly grateful to call him a mentor. And, and please take us away, John. Hi, Andy. Hi, Sandhya. This is extremely fun for me because now I get to ask Andy some questions. And, you know, I've been learning from Andy about product market fit and how to be a good venture capitalist for almost 20 years. So excited to, to dive in. So one of the things I wanted to start with, Andy, was I think few people realize that before Benchmark, you had quite a successful career as a venture capitalist. And I'd love it if you wouldn't mind sharing kind of how you got into the venture industry and then how you shaped your approach to investing and this idea of product market fit over time. Sure. Well, I had read about venture capital in a Sunday New York Times when I was a junior in college. And I thought, wow, that's a really cool industry because it combined three things in which I was interested. One, investing. Uh, and I had been spent a lot of time on public tech investing in college. Oddly enough, it happened by accident. Number two, I loved computer science, something I studied in college. And number three, entrepreneurship. My dad had a small business. So I couldn't imagine that you could actually get paid for working in a field that combined all three. Uh, after I graduated college, I worked on Wall Street in New York because I wanted to live in Manhattan. And I became friends with someone who also worked on Wall Street, who wanted to work in venture capital. And he convinced me that the best path we had to get into it was to go to Stanford Graduate School of Business to get closer to the community. And that's how I finally got to work for an early stage firm when I graduated. What a fascinating journey. So can you take us then through the arc of, so you get started working for that firm up until kind of the insight around starting Benchmark and just your thinking around this notion of product market fit. Sure. So I knew nothing about product market fit. It wasn't even on my radar, but I always wanted to become better at what I do. Uh, two of you, I'm a student of the business. I'm always trying to figure out how to get better. And it was clear to me that Sequoia was the best firm in the business, and they ran a very different playbook than anyone else in venture. And I was fortunate to sit on a number of boards with Sequoia Partners, so I tried to learn everything I could about their very different playbook. And I would characterize the foundation of that playbook as being 
something that Don Valentine, their founder, used to say, which is, if a startup can screw something up, they will. Not that they're not very good, it's just they're under-resourced. So the only way they can succeed is if the market pull for the product is so strong that it overcomes the ineptitude of the startup. <laughs> uh, I put a name to that of product market fit. Don didn't call it that, but it was really Don who came up with the concept. And I really came to understand it incredibly well once I retired in early 2005 and started teaching it. So I think that I could have been a lot better had I understood all of the nuances when I was actually practicing venture capital. So interesting. And it, and it benchmark, so in 1995, you, you start this new firm with your partners. You all are experienced, but you are no, a new three, entrant. Three of the five of us had a lot of years of experience. Venture experience. Yes. Yeah. But the others had some operating experience, if I'm, uh, if I'm one right. One of them was an entrepreneur that we had backed at Merrill Pickard. My partner, Bruce Dunleavy, sat on his board, and he was just an amazing talent. He had started two companies by the time he was 26. The second one he sold, the first one he sold to Apple. Uh, he got the attention of someone who's famous in the Valley named Bill Campbell, who mentored him. And, and at the time, was there a particular insight that you had developed as a group about the market? You know, you, I, I ask because you always talk about insight and market opportunity when you talk about product market fit. And so just as a new entrant, I'm, I'm curious how you all thought about it then. The world was very different in 1995. Back then, we were still investing in companies with high technical risk and low market risk. They were instances of if you really could build what you said you could, you knew people would buy them. So they were examples were companies that proposed to build a chip with 10 times the processing power or 10 times the bandwidth or one-tenth the latency or 10 times the storage. If you really could deliver on that promise, you knew people would buy. So venture capital back then was really all about can the entrepreneur actually deliver on this architectural insight? So they were usually technical insights. Uh, product market fit wasn't very challenging. It was more, could you actually deliver on the breakthrough in the technology? Those were primarily hardware-oriented businesses. The world started to change circa 1994, 1995, where software became dominant. Now, software companies have very low technical risk and very high market risk. You know that you can deliver the product. You don't know whether or not somebody's actually going to use it. How would one possibly know that people would be willing to rent air mattresses for the night in your apartment? I would argue that no one can, is good at figuring that out consistently. So the venture business, so as this became more and more prevalent, circa 2000, 2001, and post-internet bubble bursting, the premier venture firms figured out that it's a really crappy risk-adjusted return to invest in raw startups with low technical risk and high market risk. So they outsourced that to seed investors. And they let the seed investors take on that risk. And then they waited until the market was proven and then they would pay up for that. Now, the number of companies worth, you know, back then we used to invest in 19, circa 1995, we would invest at 5 million pre-money valuation, hoping the company would be worth 500 million. 
fast forward to 2005, you invested at 50 million, hoping the company would be worth 5 billion. Now, you made 20 to 30 times your money because of the dilution involved, but the returns actually stayed the same, even though the firms invested at a much higher price because the markets got bigger and the number of companies worth 5 billion in 2005 was comparable to the number of companies worth 500 million in 1995. So product market fit became something far, far more important to evaluate for a business with low technical risk. And I I actually think that's something that you all are are really superb at at figuring out. Building on that a little bit, Andy, so you said, okay, as a premier fund, you want to find companies just at that moment that they have figured out the market risk. And and I guess that is also the genesis of this idea of product market fit. What is it that you looked for? I mean, you've talked a lot about the value hypothesis versus the growth hypothesis. What is it that you would say is already figured out to say, yes, the market risk is low? Like what are the elements that you looked for that you now call having found product market fit? Well, there are a couple of heuristics that I've come to believe are very good indicators of product market fit or proof of the value hypothesis or the value proposition as as you described. One for enterprise businesses and one for consumer businesses. On the consumer side, I think the best test is whether or not the company can generate exponential organic growth. Organic growth, not paid growth. You can always fake growth if you spend more money. The problem is that clients or customers you acquire don't necessarily stay. So growth in general isn't a good enough indication of product market fit. It needs to be organic growth. The only way that you can generate organic growth is through word of mouth, and the only way you generate word of mouth is through delight. So you know you've hit a nerve if you can drive exponential organic growth, and it needs to be exponential in order to reach escape velocity, if you will. So that's the way I look at consumer companies. So I recommend that consumer companies not spend any money on marketing, paid marketing, until after they have proven the exponential organic growth. On the enterprise side, the best heuristic that I've seen is something that I learned from one of my teaching partners, Mark Leslie, that he published in a paper he co-wrote called The Sales Learning Curve that is available if you Google it. It's an article in the Harvard Business Review. And basically, Mark and Chuck Holloway, his co-author, found that there's a a learning curve to sales just as there is to manufacturing. And that companies really, the uh, growth of companies doesn't really take off until the sales yield is greater than one. Now, sales yield is defined as a numerator equal to the contribution margin or gross margin generated by a sales team. That's a sales rep, a systems engineer, and a portion of an inside sales rep who does prospecting. And the denominator is the cost to field the team. So typically, it might cost $200,000 or $250,000 to hire a sales rep for a year it might cost 150, 175 for the systems engineer. There's additional money for the inside sales rep who does the prospecting, and then there's the management overhead. So the total cost to field a sales team is generally five to six hundred thousand dollars. 
So you need to generate over five or $600,000 in gross margin per team before you really have product market fit. And then interestingly, what they found was it very quick, the sales yield, once it exceeds one, quickly goes to three. I don't know why this is. It might be like Pareto's law, the 80-20 law. It, it just happens to work that way. But it's really, really hard to get a, to a sales yield of greater than one because in order to do so, you need to have found a desperate customer, not, a, not just any customer, but a desperate customer, and you need to figure out how you articulate what it is that you do to that desperate customer. So you're in discovery mode until you hit that sales yield greater than one. Then it very rapidly goes from one to three. And then you use a different rep for each phase, zero to one on sales yield, one to three, and then after three. Makes sense. What's the, uh, what's the most counterintuitive thing you have found that you have to teach founders again and again on this topic of product market fit? Well, on the enterprise side, literally the most counterintuitive thing is you should not go after the big market first. It's the exact opposite of what everyone tells you. Now, if ultimate size of market addressed is the single greatest determinant of outcome, then of course you should go after big markets. The problem is that markets adopt products in a particular order. There's a phenomenal book on this subject called Crossing the Chasm, where Jeffrey Moore basically explained that for every product, the initial adopters, who he calls early adopters, are visionaries who desperately want to solve a problem on the enterprise side to get ahead, on the consumer side, just so that they can make their life a lot better. But they don't care about references, they just care about solving the problem. So you have to serve them first. Then come what he calls the early majority or the pragmatists. They only buy based on references. So it doesn't matter how well you solve their problem. If there aren't five people who tell them this is a great thing that you should buy, they're not going to buy. That's the largest part of the market. Then come the conservatives who or the late majority, the people who only buy once a product becomes the standard. And then come the laggards who basically never buy. So the big mistake I see people make is in their pursuit of a lighthouse account, this is the term that I often hear, I want to get a famous reference out of the gate. So I'm going to try to win a really big account and then use them for reference. The problem is those lighthouse accounts are usually pragmatists. They're not desperate. So you have this catch-22. You're trying to sell to someone who isn't going to buy until you have references and you don't have any references to sell them. So the counterintuitive advice is sell to the crappy little companies that are desperate. And then as you build out the whole product, so all of the interfaces, the additional features, and the support from third parties needed to solve the problems to get the references, then you can go after the pragmatists. Andy, I'm surprised that's the number one counterintuitive thing because while it is counterintuitive and it's it's a common trap, you've always preached this idea of iterating on the who as opposed to the what. 
So that's it, number two. I think that's okay. Two. Okay. Just, just, so it was a long time ago, but I feel like that's that that stuck in my brain. So I'm a really big devotee of the lean startup methodology. It was really first proposed by Steve Blank and then popularized by Eric Reese with his book, The Lean Startup. So the two of them were basically the first people to propose applying the scientific method to business, which is really funny when you think about it. In third grade, at least in the United States, we all learn about the scientific method. We have to come up with a hypothesis, we design an experiment, we run the experiment, and then we iterate on our hypothesis. So what Steve and Eric proposed is that one should apply, an entrepreneur should apply that to business. Namely, you should come up with a hypothesis about your business and then run experiments to test it. Basically in two categories, one that they call the value hypothesis, and then two, only following the proof of the value hypothesis should you pursue the growth hypothesis. So the value hypothesis represents the what, the who, and the how. What are you going to build? For whom is it relevant? And the how is what's the business model that you're going to apply to price the product. Only once you've proven that should you spend time on the growth hypothesis, which is how do you cost-effectively acquire customers? Mistake number three is don't go after the growth hypothesis until you've proven the value hypothesis. If you don't lay a strong foundation, uh, if the dogs don't want to eat the dog food, then it doesn't matter how cost-effectively you can acquire people, they're not going to stay and it's not going to be effective. So going back to the value hypothesis, almost no one's value, initial value hypothesis is correct. And that's true for every successful company. The problem is they all revise history once they succeed to make you think that it was yeah. their initial hypothesis. Because as consumers, we prefer to buy from companies who always intended to serve our needs. The problem is the value hypothesis, the what, the who, and the how are seldom correct. Now, one's instinct is to iterate on the product, add more features to get someone to buy. That almost never works. And the reason it almost never works is that the only people who are going to buy your product are early adopters who are desperate for what you have. If there's a good enough alternative, buyers will always buy the good enough alternative. It's lower risk. It doesn't matter if you're better. If there's good enough, you will lose. So the only way that you can succeed as a startup is if you serve someone who's desperate. So if your initial value hypothesis does not prove to be correct, you shouldn't add more features because adding more features doesn't turn someone into someone who's desperate. You have to change the audience to whom you target the product to try to find a common audience that's desperate for what you do. And that's why iterating on the who rather than the what is almost always the right thing to do. And that too is very counterintuitive. That is so well said, Andy. I think a couple reactions. So one, I think we see a lot of founders think they have product market fit way before they actually do, right? They haven't actually proven the growth hypothesis at all. You talked about organic That's because growth. they have growth. The way people are usually fooled is, They've paid for growth and the company grows quickly, so they think they have product market fit. Right. They, so they don't have that big organic growth yet. They definitely don't have any proven sales yield. They can kind of 
rely on yet. In fact, we see people tripping up right at the value hypothesis stage. And I want to talk a little bit about the uh, lean startup methodology, because I think that's definitely getting you know misunderstood a lot commonly. And the idea of testing the value hypothesis with an MVP is, is the kind of question I want to surface, right? Because the idea of the minimum viable product it's superficially is simple, but if you think about specifically like what is minimum and what is viable, yeah. like therein lies the difference between a truly disruptive idea and an extremely, you know, meh idea. So how, how do both of you think about this? What do, you, what do you look for in a minimum and a viable product? Sure. Well, uh, I actually teach my students that before the MVP, they actually need to validate the concept and the implementation. Eric Ries talks about uh, using the concierge method to do this as an MVP. I refer that to that as testing the implementation. So what do I mean by test the concept and test the implementation? Well, I'm a really big believer in a philosophy promoted by Clay Christensen, the, create, the person who coined the term disruption theory. Clay believes that startups need to fail fast and cheap, that you don't have very much capital and you don't have very much time. So if you're gonna fail, you wanna fail quickly and inexpensively so you have uh, plenty of money to trust other experiments. So if you buy into this belief of failing fast and cheap, then why even start building something before you know it's going to be uh, the best use of your time and effort? So I believe that first you need to validate the concept. So how does one do that? Well, you can look to see if people are searching to solve the kind of problem you you have. So you can look at search results. You can do a Kickstarter program. You can do a smoke test where you run an advertisement for the product to see if anybody might be interested in it. Just because people are interested in the concept doesn't mean that they're going to be interested in what you intend to build. That's where validating the implementation comes from. So Steve Blank says that in order for someone to really care about your implementation, they need to have already spent money trying to solve that problem themselves. So the example that he uses in his book, Four Steps to the Epiphany, is a bank that has a very long line of people trying to get to their tellers. I know this is a very old-fashioned example, but it's Steve's example in the bank. Imagine a bank that has a very long line. If they try to solve the problem by serving everyone in line water, they're not terribly desperate. If they try to hire more tellers, they're not spending money on technology, so they're unlikely to look for a solution. If they have tried to jerry-rig something together by hiring a consultant to write some code, now that person might be interested. And the best test of whether or not they actually are interested is when you describe what you want, do they almost reach across the table and grab you by the collar saying, when can I have this? If they say, I might be interested in it, that's a no, because no one really wants to tell you the truth when the answer is no. So uh, the folks at Google Ventures came up with a, a phenomenal five-day process to test this called a design sprint. And I highly recommend that people 
read the book called Sprint that talks about this five-day process to basically validate an implementation. And then once you validated the implementation, then you can build an MVP. By the way, it only takes five days to validate an implementation. So it's not like you're losing a lot of time. Andy, is it fair to say what you've really done there is test the desperation hypothesis? Yes. That's I want to make sure. A, a much more to you just summarize what I said in about five minutes in, in five words. Well, I cheated. I've heard you say it a few times. So, uh, I mean, that connects the dots, I think. Do you, do you feel like some of the most innovative products can be built cheap and fast? Or have you thought about some of the traps you know, Sandy and I have discussed around MVP as it relates to, I don't know, take Figma, a recent success story that we, we hear a lot about. That was a product that took a while to build. I'm not sure it could have been done cheap and fast. Maybe Snowflake no, is an alternative. There was something also, they could do to prove cheaply and quickly to prove whether or not people were desperate with a prototype. So I have a a surprising answer to your question, John. It's very commonly believed that entrepreneurs succeed by analyzing a market, looking for a problem, and building a solution. That actually seldom leads to a large outcome because anybody can do that. It's too commodity. The really great and successful technology companies do the opposite, what you're told not to do which is the founder observes an inflection point in technology. Based on that inflection point, they realize a different kind of product that can be built. And then the challenge is figuring out who wants that. So it's starting with a technology and going to the market versus starting with the market and building a technology. When you do that, whenever there's an inflection point in technology, you can usually build those MVPs very, very inexpensively because they're new. It, it becomes very expensive to build products. So if you start with market looking for a problem and then build product, that generally is far, far more capital intensive, and it takes a lot longer to build a product that's differentiated. Now, once people succeed starting with the technology, creating a product and finding a market, they revise history And then the story they tell is that they started with the market and came up with a solution because that's what you want to hear. So one of my biggest challenges with my students is they all believe the stories that they've read. And then I tell them what actually happened because I'm old enough to know how the company actually started. You remember the gritty details. Yes. I'd love to ask you both, maybe from your, you know, since you brought up the problem of revisionist history, like from your direct experiences, where have you seen people kind of balance the need to get something into your customer's hands to get feedback, like ship quickly, essentially, right? That That is a big impetus uh, in our industry. Versus making sure that you are not just doing incremental innovation where, yes, you are solving a problem, but it's not big enough and the customer isn't desperate enough and you're just not able to gauge that. Any examples from your lived experiences that come to mind? I've summarized my entire course on product market fit in one question. What do you uniquely offer that people desperately want? If you're just going to add incremental improvements, then 
it's unlikely people are desperate for an incremental improvement. There's a good enough alternative. Without change, there's seldom opportunity. This is something most people don't realize. And by the way, there's exceptions to everything I'm saying. I'm, I'm giving you, there's always outliers, which is why I don't allow my students argue with examples because the examples could be outliers. But without change, there's seldom opportunity. The whole incremental thing is not based on change. You know, you know, one of the interesting things that I learned from Brian Nesmith, who is a previous guest on the podcast and someone that Andy and I have both had the pleasure of working with, when he started Arctic Wolf, he told me, I don't mind if I upset the first 25 to 50 customer prospects. What I want to know is that there's 5,000 more just like that. So he pitched the very innovative solution that was Arctic Wolf, knowing that he didn't have the implementation. He did. It would take a long time, in fact, to build it. But he didn't want to go through the process unless he had a lot of confirmation that people were really desperate and thought what he was building was really innovative. Because Brian taught me that maybes are worthless. If you ask a customer, <laughs> are you interested in it? And they say, well, if you add these features, I'm, uh, I'm, I will be. They're not. If they ask for more features, they're not desperate and they're never going to buy your product. <laughs> they're lying to you. They're <laughs> lying to you. They just don't want to say no to you because as human beings, we've learned that that's impolite. In the customer development process, of trying to, to validate the implementation, I think one should apply the same five why methodology that engineers uh, apply to postmortems. That when you ask the person, uh, would you like to buy the product? And they say, well, uh, yeah, actually I might. Well, I hear you say might, why not yes? And then they give you an answer and you just keep on asking. now. Most people are not willing to do that because they think that's either awkward or annoying. And one of the things that I taught my head of customer support at Wealthfront when we first shipped was if a potential customer calls you up and asks you questions, and then I want you to ask them, are you going to open an account? If they say maybe, that's a no. So ask them why. And keep asking them questions until you find out why they won't open an account to the point that you annoy them. Now, he had worked in private wealth management where he was taught you should never annoy a customer. And so I said, look, Jed, if you, if you really piss off 100 customers, what do we care? We, we're trying to, we have a, a potential market of 10 million customers. So pissing off early prospects, it's not like they're going to go around talking about how much they dislike you. But again, I think uh, entrepreneurs think that might happen. I think this is probably the hardest lesson to internalize speaking kind of for the founders in our audience is treat every maybe as a no. Probably maybe like is not, no maybe is worse than no. <laughs> because yeah. it's no with, with false hope. Right. So I only want yes or no. And if it's no, I want to know why it's no. So I might be able to adjust my hypothesis. Maybe doesn't help me adjust my hypothesis. John, I'm curious, what's been the most influential of all of these conversations you've been having with Andy over the years? What's been the most influential for you in terms of your approach and building unusual ventures? Well, as you know, I tell everyone at Unusual, if you want to meet a great venture capitalist, let me introduce you to Andy. <laughs> we start there. 
you know, I don't, there's no way I could give you one thing, Sandia. You know, I, this, this is, this, this is conversation alone is the last 17, 18 years, you know, it's, I'm a slow learner. So it's taken me a while to, to digest everything, but I need to hear it multiple times. But listen, everything I know about venture capital, I've learned from Andy. And uh, I can't think of a big decision or a challenge I faced in the last 17 years where I, I didn't I didn't go to him for guidance. So, you know, I just want to say that Andy's a master of the craft and any success I've ever had, I, I really owe to Andy. You know, so you're, you're um, kind to say that, John, but you've had some awfully good success over the years and you've learned along the way from all the different experiments that you've run. And Sunday, I see you doing it too. Look, the amazing thing about venture capital is you can be wrong the vast majority of the time and be really successful because unlike almost every other endeavor, venture capital is not about the percentage of the time you're right. It's about the magnitude of the success when you are. And very few people get that, and you too do. You know, Andy, but as much as you're an amazing student and professor of this industry and startups, right, and we've all learned so much from you, I do want to say that I think the most important thing you've taught me is I, I think never have I reached out to you with, with, a, with a challenge or struggle and you haven't immediately gotten back to me. You, you, you're a giver, right? You, you taught me that, like, and I know that's how you treat people. And that's the most important thing, right? Like, we've often laughed about it, but it, it's so authentic to you, right? Like, I think you told me one of the first things was one of the keys to success is picking the right partners, <laughs> whether that's in business with founders or oh, obviously in my, my personal <laughs> life, it's been the most important decision I've ever made. So I, I am so grateful to you for, for that as well. Well, I've benefited enormously from having great partners who made me look a lot better. Look, there are many people who are better venture capitalists than I. I like studying this stuff and trying to figure out a better way to articulate it. Uh, that doesn't mean that I was the best at what I did, but I think I, I'm, what I've become is pretty good at, at helping articulate these things uh, fairly simply. So since we're on the topic of VCs, I've heard from John, Andy, that you've come up with several archetypes for VC personas and how they approach this job and try to win. We would love to hear some of those. And also would love to figure out what, how you classify John and yourself, <laughs> perhaps. I'll let John classify himself. But you know, when, when John uh, set out to pursue a career in venture capital full-time when he graduated from the GSB in 06, right, John? Yes. In 06, I remember he scheduled a meeting with me to talk about what was the best personal strategy for him to follow. and. That, for the first time, made me think about what were some personal strategies that I had seen succeed. And I think together, John, you and I came up with seven of these personal strategies from which to choose. Uh, you tried a few of them on, and one of them worked best for you. Uh, I've since expanded it to 12. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> 12 unique strategies that I've seen over the years where people have succeeded. And the challenge is picking something that's authentic to you. And then, and by the way, not everyone succeeds, even if they pick a strategy that's authentic to them. But if they are fortunate enough to succeed, then they start to combine some of these. But there's usually, like minimum viable product, there's usually one feature that gets you your success, and from there you can build. So. The 12 
VC personas that I've seen are the beggar, the salesperson, the logo hunter, I don't mean to be sexist in this term, but the smart guy, the talent guy, the founder, the famous exec, the lab rat, uh, the technologist, the networker or schmoozer, the sage advisor, and the industry expert. So there's a very famous venture capitalist who was a phenomenal beggar. So he often would find really good companies, but would often lose out in the beauty contest of which investor got chosen. And so at the end, after he lost, he would beg the entrepreneur for a small piece. So just give me 250,000 or 500,000 out of a five or $10 million round. Well, after he accumulated four or five of these that went on to success, which actually had very little impact on his fund, he was able to promote that he had invested in the very beginning of these successful companies. Entrepreneurs never do due diligence, almost never do due diligence. So they didn't know he really didn't have much to do with those companies, but he begged his way into a number of successful ones and succeeded. And then he was able to actually win deals based on his track record. Uh, The salesperson is someone who just knocks down the door when they hear a company is great. So they through whatever means, they might hear that a company is starting up and they just don't take no for an answer. This works for some people's personality and not others. Uh, The logo hunter, this is something that I think uh, John intelligently adopted uh, for young venture capitalists, that you uh, figure out what markets are uh, very important. You then try to figure out which company is likely to win in that very important market, and then invest at a very late stage so that you can say you invested in that successful company. Again, entrepreneurs don't check at what stage you invested. So if you put two or three of these together, that allows you to make a much more compelling case to try to win the Series A deal because you might have had more, you might have been associated with more successful companies than others. Uh, The smart guy is what it seems that you're just so sharp that people want to work with you because they enjoy your intellect. They really like bouncing ideas off of you. So DIC you as this one. Uh, The talent guy is someone who networks in really talented people with the hope that they will later start a company. And if you were early on in getting to know them relative to other venture capitalists, then they're more likely to call you first. The founder we all know is if you founded a company, perhaps that puts you in a better position to win a deal uh, from another founder. In fact, the data says this is one of the worst areas of return because what makes you a great founder doesn't make you a great picker of investments. The famous exec is perhaps the most common path to success. If you've been a VP at a very successful company, then the odds are that you were very heavily recruited because people wanted you in their company. That's a very good uh, proxy for network. And uh, you were also probably highly sought after for your advice, which is another great proxy for network. All things being equal, the person with the best network is likely to have the best returns. Because if you ship in a, if you fish in a better pond, 
you're likely to catch more fish. So the famous exec, uh, other than CEO, is really good. CEOs tend not to make really good venture capitalists because they tend to make a common mistake, which is they evaluate companies based on whether or not they would want to run that company, which is absolutely irrelevant. Uh, the lab rat is someone who roots around, this was more relevant back in the days with high technical risk, but you root around in uh, the labs at Stanford and Berkeley and MIT to try to find some really breakthrough technologies and uh, encourage perhaps the graduate students to start a company around that where you can be the initial investor. The famous technologist is someone like a, a Mark Andreessen who Founders just want to talk to because they want to get their opinion. The networker or the schmoozer is someone who goes to all the conferences and is always, you know, working all the angles to find out what deals are, are, uh, are in process. The sage advisor is what it sounds like. This one takes a little while, but uh, you don't speak often. But when you do, people always really value what you say. And uh, they tend to tell their friends about it because people like that are very unique. That's an oxymoron, very unique. Uh, and then the industry expert is someone like Bill Gurley in marketplaces where you made an investment in a particular market space that, every, that happens to be pretty broad. And people think because you had a good investment that you're the expert, so they tend to bring you more companies in that space. Interestingly, in venture capital, if you spend all your time in one marketplace, you tend to fish in that pond too long and you miss out on the next pond. But those are the 12 personas that I've seen work very, very well when they have worked. Awesome. Well, I feel like you should write a book on this topic alone, Andy. <laughs> I think it's amazing that the seven has now become 12. And uh, <laughs> What do you continues. think of the expansion, John? Well, I remember the conversation because most of them I didn't qualify for. I couldn't be the CEO or the smart guy or the sage advisor or these, you know, many did not apply. So I, I had to find the thing that was authentic. And I, and I remember feeling that as someone who loves technology and loves to learn and has a background there, what energized me was, was the talent approach, was going and finding the really smart thoughtful product people and sharing ideas about how markets were changing and how products needed to evolve, roaming the halls of Berkeley and Stanford and MIT and trying to find, you know, interesting projects. But I think to your point earlier, the market has changed just so much in the sense that so many of the bets we make today, there's, there is a ton of market risk. So just having a technical innovation is insufficient in terms of good seed investing. Yes. I'm I, curious I on, on that uh, topic. Uh, I know, you know, Andy, you were instrumental in encouraging John to start unusual ventures. Like, and, and you've seen how the venture capital ecosystem has evolved like dramatically in the last 10 years alone. Like what, what, what did you see as the gap in the market and an opportunity to like build another fun? Like, what, what was your uh, observation? Well, I, I am strongly of the belief that entrepreneurs do not succeed in technology because of their grit or attitude. I think they succeed because they had a unique and powerful insight that led 
to a product that people desperately wanted. How else can you explain a 25-year-old running a billion-dollar business? They're not great executives. They just happen to have a, a great insight. Now, some of them uh, learn to become very good leaders, and some of them do not, which is why I don't think only founders can run companies. I think there are advantages to that. But to me, the insight is what is absolutely critical. When the premier venture firms outsourced the first round of investment to angel investors, there was something really big missing. And that was a partner with whom you could discuss how to best turn the insight into a, a compelling value hypothesis. I'm, I'm using the lingo from my class, and I hope it's clear, but uh, I don't see that in angels at all. I know angels think that they won the business away from venture capitalists. Nothing could be further from the truth in my observation. And I think one of the phenomenal things that Unusual uniquely brings is the ability to help to act as a sounding board, not the director, but a sounding board for the founder to think about how to translate that insight into a compelling value proposition. Now, it's going to have to be the founder's idea. It's not the venture capitalist who comes up with this idea. But there's a way to know how to do that, that is a unique and, and I think incredibly valuable skill set that few people have, especially at the seed stage. Yeah, this idea that you can demystify the, the, the part of the journey from idea insight to actual product market fit is what we wanted to build the entire firm around and felt like it was a lost art somewhere that the, the industry had transitioned to one of make a lot of bets, see what happens and bet more on the ones that, you know, that work, but a lack of partnership with the founders in that insight to product market fit journey. Look, I think that there are ways to improve the probability that your insight finds product market fit, but it is by no means a sure thing. So just 100%. Just because uh, I teach or you offer a, a process for that does not ensure success, but it, I really do believe it can improve the probability. We talk about changing the slope of the trajectory to get there, uh, but not making it happen guaranteed. Yes. So helpful, Andy. This is amazing. Uh, we're so grateful for you and your time and insights. Um, this, is, this is such a highlight for Sandy and I to get to do this. So thank, thank you so much. Well, it's a highlight for me to see how well you are all doing. There's no greater feeling for a teacher than seeing his or her students go on to success. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Andy. Uh, thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, this is pretty much, this whole show was uh, inspired by the phrase product market fit that you coined. So we feel super grateful having you on here. Uh, thank you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Startup Field Guide with Sankhya, an unusual ventures podcast. 
stay connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you liked what you heard, please rate our show and help us reach more aspiring founders with lessons on how to find product market fit. Thanks for listening. Until next time.